Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. But over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories. Not any stories, mind you, but tales where things would go horribly wrong. While they grew into adulthood, their senses of humor stayed in the fifth grade. As they both gravitated to careers in broadcasting and they moved to separate coasts, their friendship grew even stronger in their obsession for the best stories of others' mishaps. Cover the young one's ears, pour yourself a strong beverage, and buckle up. The Box of Oddities is about to present Schneebly and Toth. The Shallow End of the Gene Pool. Can you freaking believe it? Episode 6. I'm pretty excited about it, I, I've got to say, and uh, also surprised that we've made it this far. I figured they'd shut us down after two. Yeah, I thought if we got three out of these, it would be uh, it would be a freaking miracle. But here <laughs> we are, doubly past the point where we expected to crash and burn. You know, mm-hmm. I had a very, very odd dream last night. D- did you? That you and I did a, uh, a Zoom cocktail session uh-huh. uh kind of a, a bi-coastal happy hour yes and that at, at one point after a few glasses in i i said to you hey cat's not there i'll come over and lick your desk <laughs> um that actually happened that wasn't a dream Oh, wow. Okay. I just thought it was a very vivid dream. I said that. You did say that. I had opened a Frosty and it kind of exploded all over my desk and you said something Uh about coming over and licking my desk. Yeah. Between you and me, uh, a longtime fantasy of mine. (laughs) This is also our our very first, what we're calling the Bachelor episode because- both of our wives are out of town. Not together. Not together, ironically. Mm. But we. Uh, this feels a little bit like we can get away with saying anything because nobody's here to supervise us. Also, let me just paint the picture for you, dear listener. Uh, we're both sitting here in stained undershirts, dirty dishes in the sink, and no pants. So welcome to the Bachelor <laughs> edition of The Shallow End, uh-huh. which dovetails, if I may say so myself, beautifully into my story about two brothers, Homer and Langley Collier. How's that for a name? I love those names. Yeah, this was, uh, this was in the early 1900s. They, they had a brownstone, a, a mansion, actually, 5th Avenue and 128th Street. So what, uh, th- that would be Harlem. And 
This was after Harlem, you know, became the center of African-American life. Homer and Langley, they were the sons of one of the city's oldest families. They, and they were, they were outstanding individuals. They were both graduates of Columbia. Uh, Homer, the older one, was born in 1881. He practiced law wow. until having a, a stroke in the early 30s. But he had a very Dickensian character about him. He had, uh, you know, high collars and sideburns and uh, the derby bow ties, things like that. But as as often happens, after their their parents died and they had inherited this home, they're they're living alone and and things start to go a little south. Okay. And in 1917, the first sign that maybe things were a little off, they disconnected their telephone because they claimed they had been billed for long-distance calls they didn't make. And then they they stopped paying their bills. All their bills or just... All their bills. Wow. So after some period of time, the, uh, the city of New York shuts off their gas. So now they're, they're living without heat, without hot running water. They're using kerosene for lighting and cooking. In this mansion. In this mansion. And they even, and, and I still don't know how they did this, they managed to somehow get a Model T, an old <laughs> Ford Model T, into the basement of the house where they rigged it so that it would generate electricity. It was like, oh you know God. what? We don't need to be on the grid. We've got our own electricity. I got a, I got a Model T here that'll work just fine. They must have disassembled it piece by piece taken it downstairs and reassembled Into the it. basement and wow. reassembled it. And, exactly. and obviously properly ventilated as well. One would hope. Now they're living without heat and running water. And obviously the, the neighbors are starting to notice that something's up. And so this draws the attention not only of neighbors, but of, uh, rumors start to float around newspaper reporters and things like that. So one reporter, uh, a woman named Helen Worden, is actually following Langley, one of the brothers. And she says, so you're, you're the mystery man of Harlem. And she had been writing stories and, and repeating rumors that the, the, the facade of the home, which had now fallen into kind of a disrepair, uh, concealed actually a palace inside containing rare antiques and piles of money. And she uh, she even says, so I understand that you have a rowboat in the attic and a Model T in the basement. <laughs> it's nice to know well, that journalism hasn't changed much. Yeah, tabloids are tabloids. Was she working for Hearst? She must have been working for Hearst. Probably so. Yeah, yeah that sounds like a that sounds like a Hearst thing. So Langley says, well, yes and no. And he explains that the canoe had been his father's and that his dad used to carry the canoe down to the Harlem River oh, no. on his head <laughs> and paddle downtown to work and then go back to the Harlem River and paddle it back uh, at night. And then admitted, yeah, the Model T is in the basement, and uh, you know, but now I'm using it as a generator. And so <laughs> things start to go even more off the rails, and and now neighbors are trying to peek through the windows, and and they're throwing rocks and bottles at the oh, house. And those kids, damn kids, and their rocks and bottles. And so Langley, the uh, younger brother, turns the mansion into a, a fortress, <laughs> and he crams it with anything he can find junk-filled 
packing boxes. He goes out in the middle of the night and just gets stacks and stacks of newspapers and starts saving mail and old books and anything that they can find. And he starts to build these tunnels in the house itself. This isn't is so much a compulsive behavior in this case as it is a defensive maneuver on his part. Yeah. So mm. he has packed this stuff with... Um, as much material as he can find. And and because he does it at this at night, he leaves the house at night, people don't always see what he's bringing back. But he, unbeknownst to anybody except the other brother, Langley has been building these tunnels in the house and setting up booby traps so oh. that if somebody can somehow bust into the house, they're going to trip a wire or something and they'll be crushed by... Debris. By all this junk, by debris. Wow. So it's now 1947, March 21st, 1947. That morning, the, the New York police get a phone call saying there's a smell coming from the mansion. It smells like a <clears throat> like somebody's died in there. Oh, no. That's never a good sign. Never a good sign. And the police understandably show up and they try and bust through the front doors and they can't. They can't even budge the doors. And they end up having to go up to a, uh, a window because they, they, they try, well, okay, let's, let's try the front doors. That doesn't work. They try basement doors. They can't get in there. So they're finally able to bust a window, an upper floor window. And all they see is this solid wall of boxes. They can't see anything inside. But they are able finally to force their way inside the house. And that's when they see what the Langley brothers had been doing for over a decade, which was just stacking this house and every available space, every room, every stairwell, every closet, everything is ceiling high. And it's, it's now understandably infested with rats oh, yeah. in these boxes of paper and old furniture and junk. And you can just picture what this, what this looks like. So that's that morning. About noon that day, they enter a, another second story window and they find the body of Homer, the older brother. He had not eaten or uh, had anything to drink for at least three days before dying. And he, wow. uh, in the autopsy, they find out he had chronic bronchitis. He had bed sores. He had pulmonary emphysema. I mean, he was just, he was just a mess. Well, by the end of the second day, this is according to the, to the New York Times, the first floor hallway alone, they've got teams of cops and workers pulling stuff out. And they, in that first floor hallway... They had pulled out 19 tons Whoa. of debris. This is just wow. the first floor. And at this point, obviously, people, it's turned into kind of a, a, a sideshow. People sure. are standing just watching this stuff being carried out. And the cops have trouble. Everybody has trouble who has to go back in there because the place, and understandably, smells so bad. And so the cops actually start smoking cigars <laughs> as they're doing this work of pulling the stuff out of the house just to try and, you know, cover up the, the stench. And, uh, and a New York Times reporter describes the smell of organic corruption, quote, like a blow from a mailed fist. <laughs> How's that for writing? Wow, that is that is poetic. 
So they finally get a housing inspector in there because now they're thinking, okay, what what is the condition of this of this structure? And the housing inspector says that you know the house is rotting. They've got uh, water leaks. The floors are saturated. The roof is leaking. It's structurally unsound. So finally, the city steps in. And the court hires movers 10 days after that first police call mm. to go in and finish emptying the house. They, they end up ripping out the cellar doors. They remove a 2,500-volume law library. Twenty-five hundred books, but that's only a tenth of the books that are still in the house. And in the hundreds of tons of garbage, they find old family oil portraits, mm. hope chests jammed with unused silks, material, clothing, wool, brocade, a half dozen toy trains, 14 <laughs> pianos, both upright and grand pianos, 14 <laughs> pianos, chandeliers, uh-huh. tapestries. 13 mantel clocks, 13 oriental rugs, five violins, two organs, and Langley's Certificate of Merit for Punctuality and Good Conduct from PS69 for the week ending April 19th, 1895. What a treasure. How's that? Wow. So by April 3rd now, the Herald Tribune reports that the movers, in clearing only the first two floors, had removed a total of 51 tons of stuff. Another 52 tons later, on April 8th, they found Langley's body. Oh, boy. Police said his clothing had snagged a tripwire. Oh, no. Releasing a booby trap that, keep in mind, he had made Uh that buried him alive in newspapers. He had inadvertently taken his own life, tripping one of his own own booby traps. At least it wasn't a shotgun booby trap like one of your previous... Precisely. Yeah, this was a little more innocent. This was somebody setting out to to just protect himself, keep people out, and, and not actually kill them, but he ended up killing himself, which uh, is ironic because, as Langley Collier had once said to another reporter, all we really want is to be left alone. And then he was crushed by tons of used newspaper. Some would say that's the best kind of newspaper. <laughs> Got this from all this interesting.com, Wikipedia, AmusingPlanet.com, and the New York Sun. The thing that I find most surprising, and I don't know why, is <clears throat> the 14 upright and grand pianos. Yeah. At one, at one point, do you think, no, I think I got enough pianos? There must be some line at some point that you cross and say, I've really overestimated the amount of keyboards I need. I mean, I I get the half dozen toy trains. I think, yeah, that's yeah. cool. I'm down yeah. for the six toy trains, but 14 pianos. So he comes home with the 14th piano and his brother's like, come on, Langley. How many pianos does a guy need? And Langley probably said, we need 25, sir, and we have only 14. Keep your piano opinions to yourself. That's my Langley uh, Collier impression. That's, yeah, that's how I hear it in my head. He's got the, uh, got the derby and the bow tie. Probably a walking stick. And you know? spats. Spats, of course. Oh, watch your step. You're in the shallow end with Schnebley and Toff. We used to be called Screwdriver Town, but we've grown so big we're changing our name to Screwdriver City. We've got those little screwdrivers to fix your glasses. We've got screwdrivers so small we can't even find them with our glasses on. 
We've got screwdrivers for every need you can think of. We've got screwdrivers you'll never even need. We've got left-handed screwdrivers, right-handed screwdrivers. Hell, we've even got invisible screwdrivers. We've got screwdrivers so big they're stuck in our loading dock because we can't move them inside. And even if we could move them, they wouldn't fit through those giant doors. The only screwdriver we don't carry is a screwdriver cocktail. Weird, huh? Because we've got every other screwdriver you can think of. Screwdriver City, off Interstate 4 in Orlando. Screwdriver City. Not affiliated with Screwdriver Village or Screwdriver Hamlet of Miami. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. It's a podcast you never knew you wanted. Stories about people who make some very questionable decisions. What could go wrong? The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toph. So have you ever met a person or worked with a person who was a bit of a know-it-all? Oh, I think everybody has, haven't they? Doesn't matter what the topic (laughs) is. They think they can relate it to something in their own lives and somehow make it about them and make them the authority on the issue. Doesn't matter what you're talking about, right? I thought about this because I was standing in line at Starbucks and there were a couple of guys in front of me. One guy in front of me, he impressed me as that type, the type that always knew more about something than the other person, no matter what their level of knowledge was. Sure. I overheard them talking and one guy, one guy was proudly telling his friend uh, how he was able to fix his dishwasher using nothing but a butter knife and YouTube videos. (laughs) 
<laughs> and his friend, not to be outdone, responds with, hey, that's just like the time I had my gallbladder out. <laughs> no, it's not. How the hell? <laughs> Way to make it about How you. How the hell is that like? I, I don't know. He went on to assure his friend that uh, he was, well, far more equipped and capable of repairing dishwashers based on some vague notion uh, that his gallbladder surgery had somehow revealed to him like this mystical secret of repairing major appliances. I'm not really sure. I, I never really could understand what the connection he was trying to make was. But it, it got me thinking, because the more his friend argued with him, the more he dug his heels in. He, he was pretty convinced that he was much better at fixing dishwashers with butter knives than his friend was. <laughs> it was odd. Can you imagine a cross-country trip with these with these two clowns? No, God, no. What that would be like, sitting in the backseat? No, I, I couldn't wait to get my latte and get the hell out of there. <laughs> One thing he wasn't lacking was self-confidence. It's a wonderful thing. Except when the person is so self-confident that they don't realize they don't have the skill set that they believe they do. And sometimes that's a recipe for disaster. Sure. Such is the story of MacArthur Wheeler. MacArthur Wheeler. He was a middle-aged man in the mid-90s living in Pittsburgh. And he was a bit of a know-it-all. Regardless of the topic at hand, he was always convinced that uh, he was the smartest guy in the room and would argue oh. with people, insisting that he was right and they were wrong. And he was having a conversation with some friends one day, and uh, the subject of bank robbery came up, and he claimed that he would be probably the best bank robber ever. Nobody, <laughs> <laughs> nobody would ever catch him. Wow. Everybody would be surprised at what a great bank robber he was. And so in 1995, Wheeler decided that he had a foolproof way of robbing a bank and getting away with it. His friends were like, no, this is crazy. You, that, that won't work. And uh, there's no way that you would get away with it. But in his mind, he knew better. Regardless of what his friends said, he knew he was right and they were wrong. So, Of course he did. So to prove this, he decided to actually carry out his plan. And not only was he going to rob a bank, he was going to rob two of them in the same day. And this would show his friends. Wow. They would come by his house that night and he'd be lounging around on a big pile of money bags like Scrooge McDuck smoking a cigar, probably wearing spats. <laughs> yeah. Um, after he had successfully liberated uh, from two neighborhood banks, all of this money earlier in the day. How could he lose? What could go wrong? He had a secret weapon. This was his plan. This was his secret weapon. Now, when you were a kid, Lindsay, I know we used to do this when we were younger. We'd write each other secret notes using invisible ink. Right. With the lemon juice. You know, All you, the time. You know, you take, you write something with lemon juice and then you heat it up. You like run it an iron over it or something. And the words will appear. Essentially, before you do that, your note is invisible. So Wheeler's idea was to splash his face with lemon juice so it would become invisible. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 44-year-old man. <laughs> 
Okay. And his friends, his friends pleaded with him. They said, this will never work, but he, he could not be convinced otherwise. Now, he wasn't completely ridiculous because he decided to test it out first. He splashed a bunch of lemon juice on his face, and then he had like this old Polaroid camera, and he took a selfie. Now, remember, this was 1995, and uh, most people didn't have cell phones back then, and if they did, they were those big blocky Nokias that didn't have any cameras on them. He used an old Polaroid that he had in his attic. Now, somebody with this mindset, it doesn't take much to convince them that they're right. They will take any kind of evidence and warp it and bend it so that it fits their perception of what reality is. Sure. Now, again, this was an older Polaroid, and the film had somehow been damaged or was just past its expiration date. Because of this, when he developed the picture, the Polaroid, when he shook it like a Polaroid picture, um, the picture was blank. There was nothing on it. So... (laughs) So in his mind, yep. it's, it works. My theory's correct. <laughs> Throw lemon juice on your face, you become invisible. So on April 19th, 1995, Wheeler sets out to pull off two consecutive bank jobs in broad daylight. He began by splashing lemon juice all over his face, being careful to make sure it covered his face entirely. And uh, because his face was invisible, he didn't need a mask. So he walked into bank number one, brandishing a gun and pointing it right at the teller, demanding money. They complied and he left and immediately went to another bank a few streets over and did the exact same thing. With more lemon juice? I uh, know he, he didn't think that he needed to refresh. So he was good. Now, of course, security video surveillance caught everything, including a close-up of his face, which immediately was broadcast on all major Pittsburgh television stations. It wasn't long, maybe a few short hours, that law enforcement was banging on MacArthur Wheeler's door. The police immediately put Wheeler under arrest, and as they arrested him, he didn't try to claim he was innocent. The words that he said were, quote, but I wore the juice. <laughs> Law enforcement, rightfully and understandably, assumed that uh, it'd be a good idea to check this guy for drugs and alcohol intoxication. It came back negative. So the next thing they thought is perhaps he was having some kind of a psychotic episode. And it was concluded that um, Wheeler was not intoxicated. He was not crazy. He was just wrong incredibly wrong. Wheeler said in a post-arrest interview that uh, even though he got caught, what he accomplished was still really difficult, um, mostly because the lemon juice stung his eyes and he couldn't see where he was going. Wow. Wow. Um, Mr. Wheeler was sentenced to jail. Over the next couple of years, the story made its rounds. And then in 1999, Uh, That's when a Cornell psychology professor named David Dunning heard about it and uh, thought this would make an interesting study. So along with a graduate student named Justin Kruger, they put together a series of experiments to test the premise that people with limited knowledge or competence in a given intellectual or social domain greatly overestimate their own knowledge or competence in the domain relative to object criteria or to the performance of their peers or other people in general. Or as comedian John Cleese put it, quote, 
Stupid people are too stupid to know that they're stupid. This, <laughs> this of course, is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. This guy with um, the lemon juice was the person that inspired the study. And now it's a well-known phenomena, certainly in, in today's world. Um, a lot of people just seem to want to believe what they want to believe, regardless of what, uh, what the experts tell them. They know better. Charles Darwin said, quote, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Yeah. Boy, that's really interesting. That, that so uh, explains a lot of what uh, we're all reading these days in what people mm. are choosing to believe, you know, politically and, and basic science and things like that. that yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's not all one side of the aisle or either. There are extremists everywhere. Absolutely. And, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's just out there everywhere yeah. really right now and social media make sure it's right in our face <laughs> sure sure but this this actually this would also explain um the flat earth society people who who truly believe yeah that that the uh the earth's not round i had a um a friend believe it or not a, a guy i met on a colorado river rafting trip many years ago he was a retired uh, astronaut guy named wow. paul whites Wow. And he had uh, he had flown uh, Skylab missions and some shuttle missions, and wow. I was visiting him uh, just a few weeks before he passed away at a, a hospital in Flagstaff, Arizona, and somehow we got talking about the Flat Earth Society, <laughs> and he bristled and he said, "You know what? I've been up there in space. The damn thing's round." <laughs> 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 that brings to mind uh, the video of, of astronaut Buzz Aldrin when he was confronted with uh, one of those, we didn't really land on the moon conspiracy theorists, and he just punched the guy in the face. Yeah, it's he like, did. Like 82 in Dexas. Yeah, it's outside a hotel or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he just, yeah. I love Buzz Aldrin. God bless him. <laughs> we need more Buzz Aldrins. <laughs> yeah. See if this feels fake, pal. <laughs> <laughs> My information came from Medium Magazine, Psychology Today, Britannica and Wikipedia. Yeah, that's a story of uh, a guy who thought with the help of uh, the juice of, of citrus that he could pull off a bank heist. All because of a faulty Polaroid camera. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It just convinced him he was right. There's yeah, the evidence yeah. I was looking for. I'm surprised he didn't sue Polaroid for, uh, <laughs> you know, lead, leading him to believe this this was not true. Yeah. That's I know, it's surprising, isn't it? So uh, any plans for the uh, remainder of time before Cat gets back? Well, I was hoping that we could get together and you could lick my desk. Give me a cross-country plane ticket and <laughs> you're on. All right. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Always a pleasure, my friend. Right back at you, pal. The Shallow End. You can find out more about The Shallow End at uh, shallowendpodcast.com. We look forward to seeing you next week. Make good decisions. Your life could depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. 
and visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. All content copyright 2022. Misuse of this podcast may result in serious injury or even death. Follow all label directions. This offer void in Fort Kent, Maine and Tucson, Arizona. And parts of Orlando. Don't ask. Just trust us. Okay, gotta go. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.